electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. A good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Scott Wapner, Leslie Picker at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer and Faber have the morning off. Futures a bit mixed here as the last big data point of the year is dovish. Headline PCE drops month on month, first time in three years. Core now below the Fed's target on the six-month annualized. We'll get to all of it. Our roadmap begins with inflation and Fed expectations. Core PCE, prices rose less than expected. What it means for rate policy ahead. Plus, Nike shares tumbling after slashing its sales guidance, announcing $2 billion in cost cuts and delivering its second straight quarter of worse-than-expected revenue. And shares of Bristol-Myers slipping ahead of the open after announcing it agreed to buy Karuna Therapeutics for $14 billion. Let's get to the markets in this reaction to PCE. People were expecting maybe a dovish number after some of the GDP data, but six-month annualized is getting tossed around a lot at 187, obviously below Fed's target. We'll see. We'll talk to Lale Brainerd later this morning about whether or not that's celebrating a bit too early. But the expectation is that you would get to target on a full year basis, maybe in the next few months. But clearly showing progress because the prior six months, it was about 4.5 percent. So 4.5 percent to below 2 percent definitely shows kind of a a tail of uh, in the bifurcation of this year that we've seen. Kind of justifies why the market is where it is, right? Because the whole notion of this rally was based on the fact that the economy was going to hold up, inflation was going to come down, the Fed's going to start cutting, and you don't have to. I heard one guest a few moments ago say the Fed wants to slow the economy. Well, no, it doesn't. It actually just wants to bring inflation down and would be really happy if the economy just maintained where it is now. That's the definition of a soft landing, Yeah. that they actually would pull it off. Now, I've also heard some suggest mission accomplished today. Is the Fed ready to declare that? Maybe not. But you can't fault them if they feel close. Yeah, I didn't know that slowing the economy was part of the uh, dual mandate. That's a uh, that's a new one. I haven't heard the, the that. Tri- oh, the triple mandate. <laughs> it triple wasn't. Mandate. You exactly. know, look, it wasn't part of the mandate, but at least it was thought that they had to choke off demand sure. and slow the economy to bring inflation down. When in fact, inflation has come down without choking off the economy. No, it's absolutely true. I think a lot of people, especially if, as we reflect now on the entire year. Basically, everybody had their base case of 2023 is we would have a recession because history tells you that if you raise interest rates and we saw this just historic regime this year of interest rate increases, you'd have to have some kind of recession. So now you're kind of at this fork in the road where people you know, are becoming more comfortable with the idea that, you know what, maybe this time is different. Maybe we have avoided you know, what kind of history and precedent has told us. That said, there are some concerns out there, and, and this, of course, was November's reading. You've got the Red Sea that is creating some inflationary pressures or potential inflationary pressures out there. Um, and then other dynamics, too, which we just, I don't know, the mission accomplished thing. I've, I've heard that said as well this morning on our air, and I don't know. It, it, it's always scary to say that, especially when things can change so quickly. Well, because, Carl, there's still the long and variable lags, as the Fed chair himself would suggest, that no one truly knows if there's impact yet to come. 
But certainly right now, it would appear as though they are achieving their goals. At least they're well on their way to doing so without the economy taking a severe downturn. And as I just go back to where I started, that's the reason why we are where we are with this eight week winning streak. Um, or we're going for an eight-week winning streak, and we appear poised to do it. Yeah, going into the sweet spot of seasonality, historically at least, the last uh, couple, last week or so of the markets. You mentioned uh, resilience, durables, <laughs> up 5-4, looking number. for 1-7. We mentioned jobless claims yesterday, Atlanta Fed's at 2-6. Uh, the micro, though, is where it sort of leads to what Leslie mentions, FedEx, yep. General Mills, Nike. and now Nike. Uh, the three big uh, earnings prints of this week going into the next season that really point to promotional activity, lulls in between big events like Black Friday uh, and the holiday. That's and Even though inventory at Nike, which we'll get to, down 14, uh, does suggest some caution among the consumer. You bring up a good point. In each of those, of course, there were idiosyncratic issues for each of those stories, but they all do blame the macro, too. A lot of it's global. A lot of the macro issues are, you know, EMEA or China or other areas, not necessarily U.S.-driven, but Macro, at least in terms of how it's affecting individual earnings reporters, does seem to be a little on the, the weaker side. When FedEx came out, I was wondering what the impact on the, on the rally itself was going to be. And there was a momentary wobble, mm-hmm. right? And then the market kind of brushed that off. It's like, well, is this a canary in a coal mine of what's really happening in the macro economy? Maybe not. Then Nike comes out and say, okay, is this another canary in the coal mine of a disappointing holiday season on tap? Is the consumer finally slowing down? Um, And then the stock market, because of the PCE number, at least the futures look pretty good. Now the Dow obviously is set to open and modestly negative. But nonetheless, the seasonals and all of the other issues that are at play seem to be brushing off any of these macro concerns that that we are talking about right now. Yeah, yeah. let's get to, to one of them, of course. We mentioned Nike, now poised for the worst day in more than a quarter century. Uh, the Dow component did cut their full-year sales guidance, announced this $2 billion cost savings plan. Last night on the call, the company's CFO highlighted a pullback in consumer spending. We are seeing indications of more cautious consumer behavior around the world in an uneven macro environment. Total retail sales across the marketplace fell short of our expectations, with softer demand outside of the key consumer moments. While Nike's store traffic continued to grow, we saw softness in digital traffic and higher levels of promotional activity across the marketplace. As a result, we are adjusting our channel growth plans for the remainder of the year. That said, China up eight, uh, was up 12 the prior quarter. Gross margins beat for the first, actually expand for the first time in seven quarters uh, year on year. That's the third straight beat on gross margins. Not a lot of reaction from the street. TD Cowan does cut to market perform. They say, you'll love this, Scott, needs improved marketing. Outside of basketball, innovation at the high end is not resonating. Jordan moving to lower price points, and valuation's not cheap. Has Nike ever been criticized for not marketing enough, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they've, they've made some of the most iconic commercials that, that any of us can remember. I feel like this stock is so emblematic of the moment of, of where we are. Because check this out. January 1st to October 31st, shares were down 12%. Stock did nothing. There were questions about China, margins, as Carl was just talking about. November 1st, when this real rally got going, to right before the print, the shares were up 15%. Did the fundamentals really improve by 15% in six weeks? I don't think so. Although in, in the last few weeks, you've had Wall Street come out. They've 
elevated Nike up. Mm -hmm. They've taken maybe Lulu down a notch, not through downgrades, but at least saying, hey, on the preferred lists, we like Nike now. Maybe a little bit better than Lulu. Now maybe we're questioning whether those were good calls or not. You mentioned the TD call as well this morning on the back of the earnings. That could also have just been kind of reaction to the stock prices as well, because I went back and I was reading the notes leading into the print uh, from yesterday, and a lot of them said that the channel checks were looking a little light and they weren't expecting kind of a, a quarter that would necessarily justify the recent run that stock has had. And, of course, now you see the notes this morning uh, describing it a bit more uh, realistically relative to kind of what they printed. I, I kind of like this Bernstein note headline, Nike Q2, did the Grinch steal the Santa rally? I wouldn't say that given kind of what we're looking at with the futures quite yet, but uh, they go on to say the stock plummeted on H2, guidance cut and cost-cutting news, reduced fiscal year EPS guide 6%. Their read is that it's more macro than Nike. Margin story looks positive and management is investing growth. So whether the broader market sees through that it looks like that's kind of been the case, and it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about with regard to FedEx, kind of these bellwether names and what it means for kind of the state of the economy right now. If it is about the backdrop, then we're definitely going to watch Deckers today, Foot Locker on, uh, Lulu and Crocs, right? And, and, and the whole the wholesale up nine was a lot better than uh, North American revenue up three. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, this is a... a quintessential time of year for consumer spending. Um, and we have Jen Niffen on uh, next hour, I believe, where we'll kind of get into the nitty gritty of how this current environment is shaping consumer behavior. And we're starting to see that kind of play out in the earnings thus far, but uh, kind of digging in underneath the hood to see what's really going on. I go back to just what this stock did in such a short period of time. You could pick 200 stocks that have had these incredible gains in a six-week period of time. I looked at, let's say, you know, I'll, I'll read you some names, okay? Blackstone's up 39% since November 1st. Salesforce, 32. Schwab, 31. Sherwin, 29. Amex, 26. Shake Shack, 29. Uber, 41. Some of the banks, 25 and 30% gains. Are the fundamentals 30% better in six weeks? I don't know. But that raises interesting questions for investors now. A lot of stocks have gone up so much. I knew investors in Nike who were said to me they're scared to death going into the print because they weren't sure what it was going to bring and whether the stock move would be able to be lived up to in the earnings print. Do we need to reassess these, some of these numbers that I read off to you to justify whether we should be where we are? Some investors are going to look at those returns and say, should I trim? Should I continue to buy and believe? Well, it's interesting because the fundamentals haven't changed, but the rates have since November. And so a lot of the move, movements we've seen in at least banks have a lot to do with the fact that rates have come down, which relieves a lot of pressure on their balance sheet. So therefore, the equation would be that their value goes higher. Now, when you look at a Nike, for example, I don't know how rates are so demonstrative um, in that they would kind of drive that kind of a rally well, unless, compared to, say, Unless Black it Stoner. frees up household budgets, uh, consumer debt becomes right. an even lower percentage of disposable income. You have more money to spend on apparel and footwear as well as bigger ticket items. I thought B of A's chart this morning was interesting. 19 of 20 quarters uh, open to close. Nike has faded out of earnings. Mm. 19 of 20 quarters. It's generally not a good performer on an intraday basis coming out of the print, which is weird. But we know they've, given, they've, been, they've had challenges, whether it's been China or consumer uh, distribution models or, or whatnot, last couple of years. China remains, I think, arguably maybe the biggest question for all these companies that have China-facing businesses, what, Starbucks, 
big percentage of their business comes out of China. Apple, 20% of their revenues are out of China. Nike get, gets a big piece there. But you alluded to something in terms of freeing up consumer spending. Maybe this is no more complicated than don't fight the Fed. So maybe the fundamentals of the backdrop have improved just by virtue of that. If you think that rate cuts are coming for the right reason, because the Fed can, not because it has to cut, then maybe these gains are justified because it just sets in motion the next leg of what some say is a ready-to-rage bull market. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the problem is the more pernicious uh, evaluation of that comment is that the Fed sees something. Yeah. The expiration of tax cuts. Uh, the, a lot of conversation this week about CRE going into the new year. Fitch yesterday talking about pressures on CRE in 24. That's not going away. No, and, and when we talk about rate cuts, we're talking about maybe 100 basis points here. I mean, it's not like we're going back to zero in 2024. If we have a recession, perhaps, but I think the, the market is kind of looking at a lot of, of what's going on as this whole big regime change, given kind of the way that the Fed moved this year. But, um, you know, by and large, it's not going to be that huge game changer that will unleash all sorts of kind of easy financing and, and back to 2020 and 2021 era. I'll tell you who's not fighting the Fed, the Dodgers. <laughs> the Dodgers just dropped a billion dollars for a couple and, and, and what, does he, what does he know about the future trajectory of the dollar and inflation, right? Yeah, don't fight the Dodgers. <laughs> Although we'll see if it lives up to the hype. Uh, in, in recent postseason history, it hasn't exactly done that. But we'll see. The amount of money being, being thrown around is just e- extraordinary. Well, they're uh, M&A, from too. Whether it's sports or, or in the stock market itself. Yeah. I mean, M&A, we, for I don't know, all of 2023, we've been talking about, you know, the dearth of deals. We haven't seen anything. It feels like the last few weeks, dealmakers have been really busy, whether they're announced deals, whether they are kind of considered deals. You've got uh, the Bristol-Myers deal that we'll talk about in just a little bit. Um, so that, to me, kind of kind of validates that whole risk-on kind of sentiment, at least in terms of confidence in the C-suite, more than what we've seen prior to November right. for using that as our even, benchmark. Even Gorman's comments yesterday about what yeah. happens to markets once you're sure the Fed is done and that even some of the things that went wrong this year uh, due to their own stupidity, as he said, about some <laughs> of the regional banks. Uh, speaking of uh, M&A, Les, uh, <laughs> Leslie mentions Bristol Myers joining in this year's Pharma M&A parade. Big $14 billion deal. We'll get to that. Uh, one strategist take on the Fed pivot, meantime, setting the stage for markets in 24. We'll get to some calls on coin and paychecks. Got some news on Tesla. And, of course, we'll dig into Nike even more when Squawk on the Street continues. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. 
For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Our next guest says the fourth quarter marks the start of the Fed pivot trade as we head into 2024. Joining us now, Piper Sandler, Chief Investment Strategist, Michael Kantrowitz. Welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Hey, good morning, Scott. So you think we're just getting started, even though this has been pretty powerful over six weeks? Uh, I, I do. Um, I, I think the Fed is, or Powell's kind of thrown, thrown in the towel. Um, and I, I think we've recouped what the market drew down through the summer months. And so we're kind of back to valuation levels and, and bond yield levels, even a little lower uh, than where we were a couple months ago. So, yeah, I, I think this starts kind of a it, this is a bit of a paradigm shift to the market. You're ready for them to come out and say mission accomplished. Some say it's too early. Uh, yeah. And I think that's going to be an ongoing debate. Uh, but given our macro outlook for continued softening uh, of, of some employment trends and inflation, uh, I, I, we feel comfortable that the, the Fed is done. And you know the market certainly does. But, you know, it won't be a straight line down with bond yields. But uh, I think the confidence of investors is that they're done. CPI is not going to come roaring back. Uh, and we're going to enjoy a more stable bond yield environment for some time here. I mean, if it's a new paradigm, what do you do? Do you do you pivot along with the Fed to small caps in these other more cyclical areas of the stock market? Or do you dance with who brung you? Yeah, I, I think it's it is a bit nuanced. Because there, you know, while while the first two months of any rally always looks the same, it's always beta and small caps and risk. What I think is going to be different going forward is that this is not the beginning of a broad-based earnings recovery, and I think that's important. This is really a rally on the back of lower bond yields, uh, and that that should not produce the same sustained leadership that you would see after a sharp correction in earnings or the economy. Uh, driving the market lower. So while it's been risk on, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to say the least, in the last six weeks, uh, I think that things are going to balance out as fundamentals come back. Uh, and we'll start seeing that in the, first uh, the fourth quarter reporting, reporting season uh, next year. Do you put a target on stocks for 24 or at least have an idea of how good you think the equity market can return? Uh, we do our uh, year ahead outlook call the first week of the year, so we haven't done that yet. But I, you know, with the multiple of the market at, at tw basically 20 right now, um, with the fear of bond yields, the fear of inflation largely behind us, with credit spreads and the VIX as low as they have been in years, and really high earnings expectations, could the market go up? Of course. Are we going to see another year like this year? I doubt it. Uh, and so the way we're thinking about it here is that markets can drift higher. Uh, but it's really going to be a stock pickers market uh, this year, where um, even more so uh, than than what we saw in 2023. There was a good stat from Evercore ISI uh, showing the S&P hasn't declined during a re-election year since 1952 and averaged a 12% gain in those years. Uh, you think next year then, given kind of the dy dynamics you just laid out, 
kind of won't necessarily match that that historical fervor. Well, the, the way I, I look at it is, is we've, you know, we still have downside risk in the economy. We're, you know, again, what the market's doing here has more to do with bond yields than it has to do with macro getting better, or earnings getting better. And so what, what we have today is uh, the, the Fed, the market thinks the Fed's done. Every single time that's happened in history, the market follows through with, with, with some sort of rally. It could be as short as a couple of months or it could be indefinite. And all that depends on is jobs data. So as long as the employment backdrop and as long as unemployment claims don't go to, let's say, 275,000 or higher, I don't think we're going to see any kind of sustained correction in the market uh, from here. That, to uh, me, is the biggest risk. On a related note, uh, I did see a note from one of your peers on the street this week that said they don't think March happening. They think June's the first cut. But to get March, they said you'd need sub 50K NFP and CPI sub two tenths. Does that make sense to you? I think for the Fed to cut in March, uh, I think we'd have to see some pretty evident weakness and perhaps even a negative payrolls uh, print. Uh, so, you know, so splitting hairs maybe with 50K versus zero or slightly negative. Uh, I think the data will continue to be positive, but trends in a, a softer. Uh, but I think the market's gotten a little ahead of itself in, in terms of how many cuts we're going to get next year. I, I, we do think the Fed will cut next year. Um, but again, it's going to be more jobs-driven than inflation-driven, in our opinion. Mike, I appreciate it very much. Michael Kantiewicz, Piper Sandler. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Happy holidays. Be well. Yeah, you too. Still to come this morning, we'll get White House reaction to this morning's PCE data. NEC Director Lel Brainerd will join us in the next hour. Take a look at the pre-market. You'll see uh, the Dow impacted by Nike, obviously, on pace for one of the worst sessions in several years. But the S&P looking to resume uh, this upward climb. Uh, looking, We'll see if we get a gain of about 11 points. Back in a moment. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Bristol-Myers Squibb confirming it has agreed to acquire schizophrenia drug maker Karuna Therapeutics. All cash uh, valued at $14 billion, $330 a share. Bristol's looking to expand its portfolio with some of its drugs face some patent expiration uh, later this decade. Uh, Leslie, you mentioned a moment ago sort of the string of deals we've seen either in the energy or the pharma space lately. Yeah, uh, and all cash, by the way, uh, which is pretty remarkable given you know what we were talking about earlier with regard to the financing dynamic. I mean, this is, a, this is basically a bet uh, by by Bristol on getting into these psychiatric and neurological drugs, which they see as a, a growing market, and one where the TAM appears to be kind of uh, even bigger given this kind of crown jewel that Karuna has, this CAR XT, uh, which is currently being reviewed for the treatment of schizophrenia, but also in development uh, and could possibly be a treatment for use cases such as Alzheimer's and bipolar disorder. So very large TAM if you look at kind of strategically what they're looking at doing here. Uh, you see Karuna Therapeutics up 45%, of course, on this deal news, uh, very close to the, the price by which they are looking to pay. 3.30 a share, currently trading around 3.17. Be an interesting space to watch in the new year because it's a disappointing space this year. Healthcare, biotech, this stock hasn't done anything. Um, it's down, I have 30%. 
over uh, a year. I know there was a call on, on Amgen this morning. Jeffries called it their top large biotech pick. On ob- obesity's kind of stolen the thunder of the whole space. If you're not in that particular space, it's kind of like, okay, well, who wants to buy your stock? Uh, but maybe there's going to be more deals to be had in this space as well. Yeah, Amgen's interesting. Yeah, Scott mentions today's call, upgraded by Dawa, Daiwa yesterday and BMO the day before that. Three, uh, three positive calls on Amgen just this week. Um, but it, it's definitely about the companies that have stuck to their knitting, uh, in diabetes especially, and Lily's the prime example there. Let's get the opening bell and the CNBC real-time exchange at the big board. It's SP Funds celebrating its S&P Global Technology ETF. And at the NASDAQ, it's Inno Holdings, a building technology company celebrating its recent IPO as we try to get back to 47.60. Dow getting dinged, of course, uh, by Nike. Scott, I'm wondering whether how you're viewing the commentary you're getting on the half, uh, just in terms of sentiment, whether we do feel like this is over our skis, given uh, the backdrop of earnings, at least. I feel like people are still bullish and maybe even getting more so and looking to areas other than mega cap to do so, suggesting that if you look away from that, that the market isn't as expensive as it otherwise might appear to be. This is like the Tom Lee X-Fang 15 multiple that we hear about. Yeah, of course, because the knock on the market is, oh, well, if you look at the total multiple, it's, you know, 20 times. It's historically expensive. We've never been able to maintain that over a a long period of time. Then if you take the hood off and the hood has the seven stocks on it and you look under into the engine of the market, it's sputtered for most of the year. Well, now it seems to be running on all cylinders. Whether it's able to maintain that or not is going to be the real question, but I feel like that's where people are trying to place their bets. Looking for, you know, underloved areas of the market to buy into, even though so many of those are up a lot. Russell's up 12.3% in the last month alone. So where are the bargains now? That's an interesting question. That's a really interesting question. And of course, this week, you know, the key narrative of the whole week was, are we overbought or not? And, you know, we saw some technical uh, shifts earlier in the week related to kind of hitting that that key indicator there. Probably are, but you can remain overbought for an awfully long period of time. It doesn't mean overbought goes into sell-off mode. you know, uh, simultaneously. Exactly. And, you know, we're in the Santa Claus rally phase where we've got, you know, starting today, it's the last five trading days of the year, the first two of next year in 80 percent of cases, it has been a a positive period for the market. So, you know, there's no real catalyst, of course, this week. And, you know, early next week, we're looking ahead to the Q4 earnings, which are three weeks actually from today, they kick off with the banks. Uh, So we'll get arrested now (laughs) before then. Uh, But, you know, light liquidity, how much that narrative involving the Fed pivot is likely to carry us through this kind of Santa Claus rally period. It it seems like a lot of people who come on our air air believe it can. Well, your space, the banks, they've done really well over the last month. I mean, it's like what Waller started, Powell piled on. And then, you know, today Oppenheimer says Bank of America, City, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, their top 2024 picks. They like Jeffries and U.S. Bank Corp, but there seems to be this renewed optimism around the financials. Oh, absolutely. And there were some headlines that crossed last night. This is the weekly Fed data that comes out. Uh, if you recall that bank term uh, funding program that went into effect in March, which basically allowed uh, banks to, to tap into this borrowing facility, um, using their own treasuries and other types of securities at par. So it was seen as kind of a cheaper borrowing mechanism. 
that hit $131 billion in the week through Wednesday, which was the largest ever. So a lot of people looked at that headline and they said, oh, no, this means there's more stress in the regional banking system. Here we go again. Actually, that's not it at all. <laughs> there is a really interesting arbitrage trade that banks are seeing kind of with this uh, lightening up of rates, as you will. So basically, you've got the overnight index swap that's fallen, the market pricing and rate cuts. So that's 4.88%. So what banks are doing is they're taking that uh, and then they're like they're plowing that capital back into the Fed, which is paying a 5.4% interest rate capturing the spread and doing so to the tune of $131 billion. And so not necessarily a sign of any stress. So you've seen this huge runoff in regionals lately because people see the yeah. lower interest it's rate almost, as It almost rhymes with the sweet spot of the consumer story where you got prices falling faster than wages and we're, they're catching that spread at the household level, at least for now. Yeah. And you don't know how long this program is going to last. It was initially set to kind of be a one-year deal, so that would be March of 2024. So you got kind of three months to capitalize on this, but it is kind of an interesting use case for these banks that, of course, have been so beaten down in the first, say, nine months of the year since November. Just a totally different story. You know what call is looking like one of the best calls we've seen? At you, you jarred my memory on that, is Bill Gross calling the bottom in the regional yes. banks in early November. But it tied with Ackman yes. Longbond. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, Gross calls the bottom, right? He says, I'm, I'm the KRE, he names a, a few names. Like the 49ers beating the, the Eagles. There are a lot of regional, well, the small caps are dominated by regional banks, right? It's the biggest part of the, the small caps. So that's just an amazing call. Those stocks are up so much. I mentioned what Schwab's done since November 1st, but I don't know. Those stocks have just absolutely but surged. Not to say, though, that there aren't still unrealized losses, right? On the oh, market. absolutely. Right. There are unrealized losses. And as we were talking about earlier, just because rates go down, uh, say, 50 basis points, that it relieves pressure. Absolutely. But they still exist. Uh, as long as you can keep your depositors. And another key dynamic here is when rates decline, depositors have fewer places to take their money and, and seek it elsewhere. Obviously, the cash flows of this year, year to date, Bank of America had new numbers on that showing obviously a tremendous record. I believe it was 1.34 trillion going into cash year to date, uh, obviously because cash is finally worth something these days. Uh, but that whole kind of cash shifting trend has impacted the state streets of the world. It's impacted a lot of the wealth managers of the world. So the notes you were referring to this morning, a lot of the analysts out there, they really like big banks that have sizable wealth management divisions because of this trend. As rates go lower, people, you know, they don't go seeking higher yields outside of their deposits. They I'm, sure, I'm sure James Gorman's sitting in his office, you know, saying, uh-huh. Agree, yeah. wealth management, yeah, it's been yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Been really good for us. I agree with Leslie Picker. <laughs> His last five days in the job, by the way. <laughs> right. After yeah. a wonderful interview go with out on David yesterday. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, if there is a threat to uh, sort of the soft landing story, it might be energy related. Uh, WTI crawling back to 75 today, aiming for a 5% up a week, both on Brent and West Texas. You have the Angola OPEC news this week, but also the Red Sea issue, obviously. Container prices back to $10,000, affecting the East Coast more than the West Coast. Um, and then Maersk implementing some surcharges on these diversions. We had the CEO on Money Movers earlier in the week. He said it might be adding two to four weeks uh, delay. IKEA is a good example. They mentioned it this week as well. Uh, but that's that's at this moment. We'll see whether or not that, that two to four weeks uh, 
delay timeline gets expanded if this gets worse. Yeah, there there's, doesn't seem to be much on insight here, although energy is the, the strongest performing sector today, up 0.7% right now. Uh, consumer discretionary is the laggard there. And then you have Likely. Buffett. How, how much oxy can one person? <laughs> much or one as he wants, yes. obviously. <laughs> Another it's 310 million, uh, now 28% ownership of oxy. Yeah. He loves this story. He, he has been just, what is it, over the last two years has been just really acquiring, 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 and obviously buying, you know, on the dips in order to kind of capitalize and, and grow his stake. But yeah, 28%. I remember when he went over that 10% threshold, that was a big deal. And now we're almost uh, triple those levels. It's, it's pretty remarkable. You can see there are two years of uh, more than doubling for, for Occidental there. Yeah, and I mean, the stock has done next to nothing this year. Uh, as energy's been by far the worst performing sector. Is that going to change in the year ahead? There were so many counterintuitive things that happened this year in the market. You know, energy has a, a great year ago. It does nothing this year. Mega cap is terrible last year. Now it leads. Forgive people if their heads are spinning a little bit on where to really put your money or really place your bets in, in the new year. Yeah, it does seem like quite a, a mean revision year. Is that going to kind of shift back to... Revising again next year is, is a good question. Well, so much will depend on global demand uh, and whether or not OPEC solidarity continues. China, mm. the other huge story and demand there. We haven't even mentioned this crackdown on online gaming there, yeah. where uh, they implement some new rules, not the first time, uh, but new rules uh, barring the use of online games by minors, uh, banning some probability-based games for minors. You had 80 billion dollars in market cap wiped off a 10 cent and netties overnight. So we're back to China crackdown story. This time it's about uh, gaming. Yeah, no, really interesting. And just the, the sheer swift market reaction, uh, just 10 cent alone losing $43 billion in market, uh, market value after these rules were, were drafted. They're draft guidelines, by the way. Um, so we'll see if they actually go through and what kind of an impact that has. But clearly big business for, for those uh, select Chinese tech companies. You asked me earlier about what the commentary is on the half. Uh, you know, maybe you've had a little more positivity around some of the names, but not much for the very reasons. You mean that China? You, yeah, but for the very reasons that you suggest, because anything can happen on a moment's notice that cause your, causes the value of your investment to go up in smoke, mm. right? There was, a, I think, Alibaba. There was something positive about that in the last couple of weeks. I can't remember exactly what it was. Got us talking about those stocks again for the first time in a while, but I don't, I don't get the feeling that investors are ready to put two feet in that investment water anytime soon. Yeah. Although uh, first Dreamliner uh, arrives in China since 2019 and paving the way for perhaps some max deliveries uh, to come. Uh, we know what Boeing, uh, David and Jim love to make, not make fun, but just marvel at the Boeing. I don't know, it's probably a one year or a six month chart where it's just a, it's like an Everest cliff. Uh, going straight up in the mm. last uh, two months. It's like they're taking a flight, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> soaring into the sky. Um, interestingly, you know, we, we talked about M&A. Um, I hear all the time uh, from bankers who, who say that more than interest rates, it's actually geopolitics that are concerning C-suites. There's just so much uncertainty out there about what exactly all these governments are going to do. A lot of bankers will point to just the sheer number of elections that are taking place worldwide, including record, here in the is U.S. It, is it not a record number it's of a, people affected by elections next year? Yeah, I believe it's something like 80 countries are holding elections next year. That's a that's a rounding, but uh, 80 or so countries holding elections. And a lot of the polling is suggesting it's becoming more populous. 
So when you look at a situation like U.S. Steel, this is a, a cross-border deal, and we can talk more about that. Uh, a Japanese buyer here, um, a lot of C-suites are, are concerned about doing deals like this because they're worried about the political blowback, which, case in point, Well, you're already here hearing, we're right, from Brainerd, who we're going to have on the air in, in, in a short period of time, says, quote, appears to deserve serious scrutiny, speaking of this proposed deal between Nippon and, and, and U.S. Steel. Um, will they move to try and block it through CFIUS? We're going to find out. Yeah. Obviously going to ask her as well. It's interesting because in recent history, China as a buyer has been more under scrutiny by CFIUS. Japan actually kind of going doing a little bit of a history lesson. CFIUS was created in the 70s and kind of its powers were expanded in the 80s in response to Japan growing as an economic force and doing more deals. But lately, Japan is seen as more of an ally. And so that's kind of an interesting dynamic we're seeing here that I mean, it is steel, which is a national treasure. With a headquarters in a swing state. Exactly. Uh, in an election year. Yep, yep. Uh, so all of those interesting complexities will, will play a role here. But uh, I think it certainly has, it will have an impact and, and ears are ringing across boardrooms, especially as it pertains to cross-border deals, which have been very modest in the last I'm, few I'm years. watching shares of Cleveland Cliffs this morning of farmer Jim Labenthal's favorite stock, or certainly one of them. Um, because he talked about this deal and the premium that Nippon had offered was so significant over the August offer that Cliffs gave. Now, when the deal was announced, Cliffs was up a lot. The market saying, uh, we're glad you didn't do this, or maybe we're more glad that you didn't do it at the price that these folks were willing to do it. And they said a buyback, too. They were going to do a buyback. And Yeah, they would yeah, take savings and do a buyback. I just wonder, though, if there is real political blowback and the market gets the idea that that deal might not, not happen, if it puts Cliffs and some of these others back in play. Oh, yeah. Well, they got the support of the union, which is critical, and also especially going back to the politics. And you see both sides of the aisle, by the way, opposing this deal. So it's not a, a party-specific opposition. It is really kind of everybody, it feels yeah. like. Uh, speaking of unions, it seems like it's been a year since the UAW strike ended, but there's some auto news. Uh, Tesla today, uh, according to Chinese news agencies, launching a new mega factory for batteries in Shanghai. Uh, that would uh, begin production in Q4 of 24. And then, then just taking stock of what's being said right now about the EV deceleration Scott, and what that means for legacy automakers. It seems like every day Adam Jonas and Morgan Stanley has a notice to why that's good for GM and Ford and the suppliers that sell to them. Doesn't want them to, he doesn't want them to spend as, as oh. much as they were, right? Oh. That was that note of a, a few weeks back. I think when he, was he comparing what they were spending relative to their market, market cap? cap? Yes. <laughs> the Sergio principle, which most companies, it takes years, maybe decades, to spend your market cap in R&D. <laughs> they were doing it in days. Yes, yeah, exactly. I'm being facetious right. a little bit. Uh, by the way, Wedbush today raises Tesla's price target to 350 Yeah, that's right. Dan Ives thinks, I wonder if that's about um, less competition, meaning you get some of the legacies out of the game. That's just a bigger sandbox for Tesla to own. He's always been a big bull, Yes. Uh, obviously, on that name. Speaking of Musk, did you guys see this, this conversation that he was having uh, with Kathy Wood? About uh, indexing? Last night about, about the markets in general um, and grievances of sorts that he has with the public markets. Too high a regulatory burden, too much pressure from shareholders, and really took aim at passive investing, uh, Leslie, that it was uh, stoking volatility, that it's, quote, gone too far. Wouldn't recommend companies go public, quote, unless they really have to. 
wondering what you, you make of those comments. Yeah, funding secured, remember? He, he's been someone who's long said he doesn't love uh, Tesla in the public markets, despite Tesla for much of its life in the public markets being a, a huge beneficiary. And he said that, you know, the, the, the biggest benefit of being a public company is access to capital, which is, you know, what you do often tend to hear when people tell you the truth kind of off camera about why they're going public. Sure. It is that access to capital. But interesting that he's speaking with Kathy Wood about passive investing, who, of course, runs a suite of yes, ETFs, which active, he says are actively yes. managed. But Tesla is the second largest holding in that innovation. But you can imagine uh, a Mark Rowan, for example, of Apollo saying, yes, mm -hmm. the, the markets over are over indexed. It's hard to generate alpha. And that's why if you can manage the illiquidity, private markets make sense yeah. if for, you, for average investors. If you can get it at the right valuation. Um, and, and the turnaround stories, I mean, it's difficult, right? If you're it's an easy sell to say if you're in the private markets, you're not as worried about the quarterly earnings, you're not as worried about the pressure from investors and activists uh, kind of pushing you to do different things, which are a real, a real issue uh, for a lot of CEOs out there. Go private and you'll be able to make those changes privately. But then, of course, you have to get an exit eventually. So do you go back to the public markets? Do you this is the conversation we had with the city's uh, telecom. Yeah, Phil Drury. Uh, yes, yesterday about... Which way? You have to right? do something. Yes. And you have to, you know, return that capital to LP. So far, no one's really cracked the code of staying. I mean, you can stay private forever if you're cash flow positive. But are we going to have another debate this year about active versus passive management? If uh, you know, in the if the Fed is truly getting out of the way, uh, you know, being a stock picker rather than just you know buying the indexes and set it and forget it you know it's back to good old-fashioned stock picking i feel like we're going to be talking about that more and more going ahead here it's a stock pick as market scott yeah. <laughs> that's going to be the story for 24. yeah um as we go to break here dow up almost 90 uh trying to evade the the nike uh, downward halo worst uh, fifth worst day now in 20 years for nike let's take a look at bonds as well uh got the 30 year still with the four handle but 10 year 387 not done with data by the way new homes in umich coming up in about 13 minutes watching the markets add to some opening gains let's bring in bob Bassani see what he's seeing hey bob well the important thing carl is there's good and bad news out there i'll, I'll tell you the good news first uh it is amazing to see the market broaden out like this i know everybody was concerned about the magnificent seven but just look at what's been going on in the last few weeks s p small cap value is up 11 percent this month we've seen amazing gains uh the russell 2000 is up 11 percent uh the equal weights up five percent remember the, the s p is only up uh three and a half percent or so so we're definitely not seeing and there's the nasdaq that's actually sort of you know going along with the overall market, but that's not an outperformer anymore. I'll tell you what is concerning me. I don't like the trend of earnings. Now, we've got 16 companies reporting, including Nike and General Mills and FedEx. And generally, while the top line beats are there, 94% are beating on the top line. These are the first 16 companies. 50% are beating on revenues. That's way below expectations. And that happened with Nike again today. So we're seeing the, the numbers coming in a little disappointing. And as a result, the forward estimates for some of these companies have been going down a little bit. I find that a little concerning here, and I'm going to keep a close eye on this. These are all November ending quarters. Uh, Leslie was talking about the Santa Claus rally. There it is. Uh, first five day, uh, last five days of the year, first two. This is l laughed at a lot on the street, but actually it's a very good indicator. It's up 80% of the time, 1.3%. As Ryan Detrick has pointed out, this is the best seven consecutive days 
of the year, generally. It doesn't happen very often like that. Um, remember, we're in other seasonal patterns, guys. We're in the middle of the best six months of the year, the November to April, the best three months, November to January. And pre-election years are usually pretty strong in the middle of December. In fact, you often hit new highs in pre-election years. People ask me, why do we have these December rallies? And a lot of this is because we get tax loss selling that ends in the middle of the month. And guys, that really, you, middle of December, you traditionally see the market lift. That exactly is what's happening. We also talk about new money coming in at end of the year. And finally, guys, you want to talk about election years. Next year, in years where there's a sitting president that's running, which is happening this year, the S&P is up 12.8% historically, going back 70 years. When there's no sitting president, the S&P is down. That's a pretty amazing difference here. And most people say it's because the president can pull some levers to help the economy along. When there's no president sitting there, you have people who are more concerned about the uh, lack of the uh, economic outlook for the future. Nobody's quite sure what's going on. So it's really pretty, pretty remarkable when you're going into the election year with a sitting president. Guys, back to you. Yeah, By the way, lot. your comments on Elon Musk, I thought were very, very interesting, uh, Scott. Uh, one thing I would say is people complained uh, that, they, that you can't generate alpha with so many indexers. But the point is the, the active managers couldn't generate alpha when there was no indexing. So you see what's going on here. Yeah. Investors have rationally decided they can't beat the market. Why pay the high fees? There's a reason indexing is, is winning out because investors are acting rationally, Scott. Yeah. Bob, I appreciate it. I'm, you guys hearing this? this a little static. Yeah, the there. static. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was, it was just me. Uh, we got too much static, Bob. What can I tell you? <laughs> I'll let you bounce. <laughs> Bob, thanks. Uh, still to come this morning, NEC Director Lil Brainerd with White House reaction to today's PCE, UMish, and, uh, and uh, uh, new homes on deck as well. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.